functionally, verse 52 is really the end of this chapter, uh, concluding Jesus' discourse in parables that the most, the majority of chapter 13 encapsulates. Chapter divisions, I must be noted, weren't written originally by the apostles. You, you must think, you know, the Apostle John, or in this case Matthew, probably didn't write a big 13 as he was starting this chapter in a little verse 1 and a little verse 2. No, he just wrote one letter. And it wasn't until 1227 AD that our modern chapter divisions and verses were written. Cool piece of Bible trivia for you this morning. Most of the time they made, they were spot on. Occasionally I would have picked a different end of the chapter. But either way, this is a perfect place for us to, to land on as we head into this Advent season and we get to do a little bit more topical messages over the next couple of weeks. But either way, our first parable this morning has an incredible resemblance to one we've already examined with the parable of the wheat and the weeds. Some of you were there for that. In fact, verse 42 and verse 50 are letter for letter identical. Exactly the same verse. And part of that reason is because Jesus is now speaking to his disciples privately. And the conversation began with him at, them asking Jesus to explain the parable of the weeds and the wheat. So it makes sense for him to explain it from a different angle. Especially because the weed and the wheat is more agricultural but if you look at Jesus' disciples, his apostles, so many of them were fishermen. So it makes sense for him to give another example in the form of a fishing example. Because you guys know how fishermen are. It's all about the sea. But whatever the case might be, uh, let's note those, parab- those parallel themes between the wheat and the weeds and, and this dragnet, the parable of the net, in verse 47 where it says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So again, remarkable similarities there, that at the end of the age, everyone is going to be gathered for this. And with the angels and Jesus sorting everyone out at the judgment, some to eternal life, and yet others to this place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And what is the criteria is a very important question. How is Jesus and his angels going to separate out these two? By what basis is he going to be separating them? Well, that's what the rest of this chapter was highlighting for us. You know, are you bearing fruit bountifully, as verse 23 says, going back to the parable of the, of the sower? You know, are, are, is your life categorized by the fruit of the Spirit that we read about in Galatians 5.22? Or is, it, is your life categorized by love for God, love for others? Is Jesus your pearl of great price, as we saw last week in that parable we discussed that time? Or did love for things of this world choke your love for him, like the seed that fell among thorns? Have you 
counted the cost and said, it is worth it to follow Jesus. He is my treasure, like in the parable of uh, the treasure hidden in the field, or have trials and the threat of persecution persuaded you to abandon the faith, like the seed that fell on rocky soil. These are the criteria that this chapter has itself highlighted for us to be the criteria of how he's going to make this separation in the judgment day. Because the difference maker on that day is not going to be our good deeds. It's not going to be our good grades, those of you still in school. It's not going to be our charitable contributions, our good works, or just being a good person in general. That's not the criteria Jesus has laid out. It's whether or not you have trusted Jesus in your heart to be your Savior and Lord whether you've trusted him and him alone to forgive you of your sins, whether you're trusting in your own righteousness to save you or in Jesus's perfect righteousness to save you on that day. What are you trusting in? That is the question. And by the way, this example to a net about a net is fascinating to me. It's a very particular type of net. It's not just the regular kind that they would throw overboard and catch whatever came in. Uh, this was a net designed to go from the surface to the bottom of the sea where they were fishing. And it would drag everything into shore. Or to another boat if they were doing this out on the, uh, out on the open water. And it would collect everything and bring it in. Whatever was in the water, all kinds of fish, good and bad. It would bring in weeds, if that's what was there. Bones. Jimmy Hoffa. <laughs> or whatever happened to be down there. <laughs> the net was inescapable. And I'm going to come back to that point in a moment. This method wasn't used all of the time because it was pretty inefficient when you think about it. It would take hours to drag this thing across the shore uh, to the shore where they would do the sorting and then hours more to sort everything out. But if you got enough good fish in the catch, occasionally it was worth it for a Galilean fisherman. And Jesus is saying, it will be much like this at the end of the age. Because much like this net in this parable, Death and the future judgment are inescapable. It gathers everyone someday. Our our culture likes to ignore this, but 10 out of 10 people are going to die someday, somehow. Some are more tragic and earlier than others, but none of them are preventable. Death has a 100% mortality rate that we're all going to face someday. And in our first reading from Hebrews 9, it reminds us that it is appointed for a man to die once, but, and after that comes the judgment. There's nothing else. Our Catholic friends are mistaken. There is no middle ground. There is no purgatory, no place to make up for your good deeds or your, do some more good deeds and make up for your bad ones. No, it's, the Bible is very clear. One or the other right afterwards. Death is the dividing line. At that point, there's going to be that separation, the, the wheat from the tares, the sheep from the goats, the righteous from the unrighteous. And the question that inevitably rises up to us this morning is, are you ready? Because we only have this lifetime to settle our business with our maker, to settle our business with our Savior.
And frankly, we're not promised tomorrow. None of us are. And the stakes are high. There's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth on the other side. Those are serious stakes. And look, it's, it's not my style or my, even my desire to scare someone into the kingdom of heaven this morning. That's not, that's not me. But my job is to be clear with what the text is telling us. And Jesus was very clear about the doctrine of hell and its literal existence. The Bible says in Revelation 21 that hell is a lake of fire and sulfur. It's called the second death. In in Matthew 10, Jesus said, both soul and body face everlasting destruction there. That's heavy on the heart to even imagine. What does everlasting destruction look like? It's a terrifying thought. And in Mark 9, Jesus said that it's better to have your hand cut off than to enter into this place. It's not a cause and effect relationship, by the way, but he's demonstrating how serious sin is and how terrifying the reality of hell is. It's something worth noting, for lack of a better word. All of that to say is, do you know that you know that you know that your business is settled with God this morning? That you have the full assurance of where you are going when this day inevitably comes for all of us? Because it's worth thinking about. And look, we, we think about everything else, don't we? We make plans upon plans. We make, a ba- we, we make a backup plans for our backup plans here. I know of one accountant who spent countless hours tracking down one lost penny in the company budget. A penny! <laughs> and if they're willing to put that much planning and purposing to find one last tiny little thing wrong with the budget... How can we let something so serious as where our soul is going to go one day go unthought through? Something that so many are taught to, ah, just worry about it later, worry about it later. We might not have later. The time to settle it is today. So please don't leave here today until you have that full assurance. If you have any doubt in your mind, please grab me after service. I won't leave until everyone does who's willing to have that conversation today. And having clarified all of these parables, having made this, having brought into full focus what that parable of the wheat and the tares or the wheat and the weeds means to his disciples in private, he asks them an interesting question in verse 51, saying, have you understood all of this? Have you understood all these things, he said to them? And they said to him, yes. (laughs) I love that answer because that answer, they answered that question with more enthusiasm than they did accuracy. (laughs) Do they understand these things? Sure. Well, (laughs) maybe they, I'm willing to give them a few things. I'm sure there's a, they understood, okay, there's a separation at the end of the age, I get it. But did they really understand the different responses to the gospel? The importance of Jesus being the treasure. I have a feeling a lot of these nuances were lost on these guys. After all, they they still didn't fully understand that Jesus wasn't going to ascend into an earthly kingdom, at least at his first coming. No, the only thing he was going to ascend on his first coming was to ascend onto a cross for our sins. They They still haven't fully figured that out. 
Peter was so convinced that he would follow Jesus to the bitter end, but yet he found himself denying him before the rooster crowed. So whether or not they really did understand these parables, they certainly understood them more than their religious leaders, their contemporaries. Because as they soon would be scholars of their own right, as verse 52 alludes to, he said to them, therefore every scribe that has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. (laughs) Who were the scribes? Who is Jesus referring these people to? The scribes were basically the the scholars or the experts of the law back in the first century. These were people who were trained and studied the scriptures diligently. Now, the problem is they also mixed a lot of their tradition in with those scriptures. So they got very confused. They, They had a very mixed understanding of what the word plainly said, which is why it's so important that your personal relationship with God better not just be through me or someone like me. You better be getting your your truth through the scriptures yourself. Because I could be wrong, but this never is. That's the big difference. So, regretfully, because of that mingling of tradition and truth, their, their understandings of the scriptures often miss the point. And you see Jesus frequently fighting with the scribes and the Pharisees because of this. But yet, here is a shocking revelation in this text. Jesus is now alluding to his disciples as scholars. Which is a shocking point when you consider the ragtag group he put together. Uh, No one would ever put together a group of, many of them being Galilean fishermen, and be like, ah, that's a group of scholars right there. These people know what they're talking about outwardly. You wouldn't necessarily think that. But when you consider that these men were trained by Jesus himself, it starts to make sense. And we realize anything is possible. I mean, I know of people who have traveled across the country because they wanted to be trained at a particular seminary and study under one particular professor that they might only have two or three classes under. Because that's the importance of getting trained by the right person. Attending Jesus Theological Seminary might have done the trick for these people. Having been trained by Jesus himself, these men were certainly more equipped than anyone else at the time. There's a great passage that really, really highlights what I'm talking about. It's Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Acts 4, 13, where it's, it's, it's when Peter and John were in this face-off with the Jewish council. And their remark of what they, what they said in response to John and Peter is fascinating to me. Here's what it says. It says, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. They weren't expecting such boldness and wisdom from these uneducated men. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus, it says. That is the difference maker. <laughs> that, that they had been with Jesus. People ought to be able to tell if you have been with him or if you've just 
experienced a religion or if you have experienced Jesus. Because there is a huge difference. Lots of people experience religion. Not everybody, not most, experience Jesus for who he is. Because this is what qualifies a man for, stu- to, for ministry. <laughs> not endless study. Not, not multiple degrees. Not titles. But whether or not you have spent time with Jesus. If you really know him. Because Lord knows, many supposed scholars today don't know Jesus. They just know about him. In the same way that I might read Huckleberry Finn, but I don't know Tom Sawyer. It's the difference between reading about somebody and knowing somebody. Because to know somebody requires you speak with them. That you have fellowship with them. That you have communion with them. That there's a relationship there. And like the scribes and the Pharisees of the first century, many people today, again, even pastors today, don't actually have a relationship with Jesus personally. They just have a relationship with a religion. And it's a noticeable difference. You can tell usually by the way people pray, the way people approach God, the way people seem to have a standoffish attitude with God, or whether or not you can tell that when they're talking with God, that it's like they're really talking, like they're actually talking to him. Now that was um, this, uh, I didn't plan to share this, but I remember a story my mom used to tell me that uh, she, she, she prayed with somebody one day. And the person turned to her afterwards and said, well, that was, that, that was amazing. It's, you prayed like you really know God. And she had the joy of saying, I do. <laughs> and that is the difference maker. When you actually know him, people can tell, usually. <laughs> I mean, after all, with all of this in mind, keep in, keep in mind, the, women at, the woman at the well from John chapter 4 had known Jesus for what, 10 minutes? For those of you familiar with that passage? And after this 10-minute encounter, she goes and becomes the greatest evangelist in Samaritan history. She didn't know this. She didn't diligently study the scriptures. She didn't go to some seminary. She just knew who Jesus was, and it made all the difference. So if all that you know this morning is the gospel, all you, if all you know is that Jesus died to set you free from your sins, and that what he calls us to do is to turn from our sin and turn to him. If that's all that you know and your own personal testimony of what Jesus has done in your life, you could be the greatest evangelist South Amboy has ever seen. Don't look at me funny. I mean this. You know. (laughs) If you know God, you can do that. You have that power in a way that others who have titles and degrees might completely fail to be able to do. So with this thought in mind, Jesus gave one last last parable about his disciples this time. And I'm going to reread it in the NIV because it really brings the clearest picture of what's going, all the nuances in this chapter. It says, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house, who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. Now, the owner 
of the house, the master of the house, the head of the house, pending of which translation you have, would have a, a storeroom where they would keep their household supplies. As is true today, we all have places where we store our extra supplies, our tools, and usually in a shed or a garage, something like that. And, and we would bring each one of them out when a unique task came out. You didn't cut wood with a hammer, nor would you hit a nail with a saw. Everything has a point and a purpose. Every tool is designed for a particular reason. And likewise, Jesus is calling his disciples and all of us by application who would come after them to use the right tools for the right time. To, uh, the, Jesus is telling these men to use the truths of the Old Testament that they had been raised in from their youth as well as the new teachings that Jesus is giving them this day and the New Testament to come later because that's still yet to be written at, at, at the point of this conversation, to take both of them and use that for the glory of God. Because keep in mind, the, the coming of the New Testament did not make the Old Testament obsolete, not by any stretch of the imagination. You know, they're used together. They ought to be. Which is why I... This year, I keep encouraging you guys, and this won't be the last time, to make the commitment to reading through your Bible in a year with us this year. It only takes about 15 minutes a day, and it can completely change your life. And you just might be surprised. You know, you know that when you get to the Gospels, you're going to get something good, but you just might be surprised as you're going through some of these passages how God speaks to you, and perhaps even how much sense, how much more sense some of these New Testament passages make with an Old Testament context to them. Many people go without, unfortunately. Because after all, the New Testament and the Old are both treasure. <laughs> it tells the same message, the same story of redemption from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation. Because we were always saved by God's grace, by his unearned favor. And you see that when you read the Old Testament. You will see that um, no one has ever been saved by keeping the law. No one's that because no one could ever be good enough. Even Abraham was saved by grace alone, the Bible tells us. that We're told that he believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. In other words, he believed, and that was his righteousness. Sounds like our hymn that we sing. You know, this is all my hope and peace, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Abraham would have sung that song. He didn't know Jesus' name, but he knew it was the coming Savior. Because believing God and then accounting to him as righteousness sure sounds like the what we read in Romans about this righteousness apart from the law that would save us, doesn't it? Likewise, Moses, who was synonymous with the law, to this day when you think about Moses, you think about the law. You think about the Ten Commandments. You think law when you think Moses. And I find it fascinating that it was Moses who typified the law could not bring the people into the promised land. You guys ever notice that? 
I believe that's on purpose. Because who did? It was Joshua. It was Joshua who led the people into the promised land, whose name in Hebrew is Yahshua, Yeshua, which is transliterated into English as Jesus. It's the same Hebrew name. Joshua, Jesus, it's the same Hebrew name. Isn't that fascinating? God in his perfect sovereignty did not permit Moses to be the people to lead them into the promised land. He didn't want people to think it's the law that brings you into the promised land. But had Joshua, Yahshua, be the one to bring the people into the promised land. I don't believe that's a coincidence. Not by a long shot. And I believe God did that so that even from the first couple of books from the Bible, he would highlight behind any shadow of any doubt that it's not about works. It's not about how good you are. It's not about your good deeds. It's not being good enough of a person. It's about trusting in this coming Savior who you read about from the first couple of chapters of this book who would come to save his people from their sins. Jesus. These are the truths that we are called to proclaim. These are the truths that he is saying that the world needs to hear. Because like it or not, guys, we have been trained for the kingdom. Many of us have been sitting in these pews long enough. We've been hearing the word taught long enough to be ready to take this message beyond the walls of this building into a world that needs the light of the gospel. I'm sure you guys have noticed the world's getting dark. And I'm not talking about the solstice. It's a dark world out there that needs the light of the world clearly presented to it. And funny enough, that's what this very table is about. That's what we're here to celebrate in a couple of minutes because as we know from a familiar text we come to, that when we take communion, we remember what the Lord has done for us, and we proclaim. We proclaim his death until he comes again. It says right there in our text that how this table represents that new covenant in his blood while simultaneously fulfilling so many Old Testament prophecies. This table is where we worship the Savior who ushered in the new covenant by being the fulfillment of that Passover lamb who will one day, as we read together a few minutes ago, return to judge the world and rule in glory. Thanks be to God. Amen.